Well, uh, welcome, and today I'm joined by Anton Bushner, who is the managing partner of Front Foot Consulting and a, uh, a good friend of mine. Welcome, Anton. G'day, Darren. Um, look, uh, I want to, yeah, today we're going to talk around digital and data, but uh, in actual fact, uh, your background is direct marketing. And I remember as a creative director at J. Walter Thompson, direct marketing was the uh, the room right at the back of the agency where, you know, the sort of yep. you know, sec the second stringers were. The poor country cousins. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, I think Malcolm Old was running uh, JWT Dialogue, it was called at the time. And yeah. uh, it was always, you know, well, we'll do the presentation of the creative work and oh, here's the direct marketing piece. Yeah, you're spot on. You're bringing back some beautiful memories of, <laughs> of being pushed down the hallway. Uh, I was the same, yeah. It was the late 80s or early 90s. Um, and you were literally the poor country cousins. It was the big brand advertising, uh, TV commercial launch, uh, obviously planned for four or five months, mm. um, exotic shoots, etc. And the only reason we found out about it was probably about three weeks before launch, where they'd say, can you put the end frame on the uh, on an envelope and on a brochure and mail it out to this <laughs> database? And we'd scurry around and, and copy it and, and print out about 100,000. Well, I, I think to, as a way of showing how it was considered then, it, in any major formal presentation to an advertiser, there'd be the strategy, the creative, then the media, and then there'd be the direct marketers after the media. Yes. <laughs> And, and you only had about two minutes to talk, so it was a, it was an, a one-hour presentation. I remember actually a very major, major pitch uh, with an agency, and I had literally the two-minute spot um, at the end, as you say, and, and I had to sing for my supper to talk about data and databases we'd use and segmentation, how we'd cut to different customer segments and how we were going to mail out in those days and do email. That was the, the big exciting thing. Oh, yeah, the new innovation was email, wasn't it? Yeah, of course, and it was all pre-social. Um, and all that within two minutes, 120 seconds of quickly talking about that, wrapping up with an ROI. But my God, how the world has changed or marketing's changed because, you know, technology, as you said, social, email was just coming into it, I remember that. But, uh, you know, then we had the internet around the late 90s, um, was just starting to be talked about, but, uh, you know, no one was really using it. And then we get into the 2000s and suddenly now it's all about technology. And yeah. direct marketers are really coming to the fore of the conversation. Yeah, it's been interesting. The, the grounding in, in business and ROI and metrics, which, which I guess direct marketers were, if you think of the very early days, you know, the Lester Wondermans of the world and the, the David Ogilvies in a sense, how they saw direct marketing, it was very much driven on, on a business grounding. So we, we knew how much money we were spending, we knew who we were mailing out to in those days and we could look at an ROI in terms of who actually subscribed or, or returned money for whatever we were doing. Um, whereas the technology boon and what's happened probably over 10 or 15 years, uh, I've certainly seen that a lot of new digital marketers have come through, you know, social gurus, etc., mm. um, who just don't have that, that business grounding. Um, however, on the flip side, there are some amazing opportunities of what technology has brought us. It's allowed us to get to so many more people quicker, faster, cheaper, um, which is exciting. Because so. well, it's interesting you should say that because from my experience, this whole area of technology and data, right, there is sort of three groups that I see. The first group is the people that are 
pure play technology. You know, they've almost grown up knowing the technology. And so they'll often, you find their conversations are just littered with, you know, the latest platforms, applications, you know, what can be done. Then at the other extreme, there's people like yourself, direct marketers who have a very solid business grounding and a very good understanding and application of marketing, who are now applying technology to those traditional skills. And then there's the middle group, and I'd call those the, um, you know, they were, they were like the agency people like myself that have tried to embrace technology along the way, except that they're using it not at its optimal. Do, mm. is that, do you reckon that's a reasonable assessment of the sort of large groupings? Yeah, I think that that's a fair, a fair breakdown. Um, I think one of the big things I've seen is they've cut, you know, training got cut out of most businesses. Mm. Um, you know, when HR departments found it tough and they had to cut, cut training. So I'm not sure whether it's just the technology pure players or the fact that training has been cut out. Um, and hence, a lot of people that have just come through the digital revolution um, haven't really been trained across all aspects of business. Mm. So, you know, they've been thrown in to the social department. And the social department, when things started being social around what Facebook was 2004, 2005, um, was one person, a bit like the old direct mailer. You know, mm. It was one person now sitting in a social media uh, division creating a bit of social media. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a, there's probably more than those three groups that you talk about. Um, but the spectrum of, of thinking has certainly changed. Uh, I see a lot of people who are very focused on just digital and social and the technology mm -hmm. and what that aspect can do. Um, well, that group though are the ones that I'm talking about that you know will do things because they can, not necessarily because they should. Yeah, you're right. But, but I think that's a mindset across a lot of a lot of digital people or people coming into digital. Um, certainly, marketers are seeing like that. Traditional CMOs and people that aren't grounded in in pure play digital, like you say. Um, yeah, just see it as well. It's a shiny toy, or this technology can do something for me. Um, but again, you need to get back to some really fundamental business objectives. Um, that seems to be the stumbling block with a lot of players, whether they're vendors or agencies, um, they're pushing that latest technology. But there's a downside to that sort of mindset of the shiny new toy, which is, you know, we saw uh, brands with lots and lots of websites and microsites. Then the, um, the mobile phone app became mm -hmm. the hot thing and everyone had to have an app whether you know anyone used it or not you know and and social media you know everyone needs to be on social media and they're pumping out messages like traditional uh, a traditional advertising chat so you know along the way huge amounts of time money and effort are wasted as people are doing what they can do rather than what they should do is is probably my point yeah and how do we avoid it well, I think yeah, we, we've got to also step back and, you know, I'm very pragmatic about this, that, that don't always have the answer. However, it's all shiny new toys that marketers can get, get access to. So it's no wonder that they've gone, oh, let me try this. You know, just as any new technology came out, if you think about the fax machine, that was an amazing innovation to fax <laughs> something. You know, have a fax arrive within seconds. Um, now we can just do it via email or via social. You can tweet it or send something to Facebook straight away. Um, so because it's available, there's lots of marketers trialling and testing uh, these new technologies, um, some good, some bad. Uh, you're right, though, a lot of them going in with, with eyes closed, um, not thinking about it. Um, I remember just a side conversation, my daughter who uses a particular social media, 
Um, I was talking to her as to, to why she did certain things like she did on social media with her, with her girlfriends. Um, she said, well, it's just because we can. Mm. I didn't know they were doing it, but she said, that was two years ago, Dad. That's so old now. I'd never do that. Yeah. It was just a silly way of learning about social media. But I think there's a big difference between your daughter doing it and a marketer putting a couple of million dollars behind a, uh, experimenting on a new channel. Unfortunately not. And I think that's why I use that analogy. I'm seeing a lot of marketers blindly pushing money into some of these things. Like, you know, we've had a decade of social media now and there's been lots of communities built just in Facebook or, you know, obviously other areas. But then Facebook changed its algorithm and said we're going to start charging people for for boosting their posts to be mm. seen. So Because they know, had to monetise it. They had to monetise, of course. Yeah. It was a free platform. But marketers were going, I'll just build all these communities in, the, in someone else's backyard, as I call it, um, and think it's free, therefore it's cheap and, and easy to manage. Mm. But in reality, like you're saying, it's not free because you've got resources managing it. It's a customer service channel because I or a consumer is complaining, so you need to have customer service people uh, who can talk that language in social media. Um, they generally sit in call centres. So there's a whole cost around it, and that's, I guess my point that you've got to bring it back to it's really just another channel to get to certain target audiences that you want to get to but if you're not thinking about it from your brand's perspective and your business's perspective then yeah you can fail um, and fail pretty pretty quickly so that's an interesting point you brought up brand and you know i've had a number of conversations in um, recent um, in recent weeks with very senior marketers who have embraced data and digital you know, the channel and the data to inform them around channel, uh, that have said, that's all we need now. I mean, in some ways, brand is irrelevant because we know who our audience is and we can talk to them directly. Mm. Do you, would you agree that that's the direction that uh, marketing is going or not? I'm afraid that a lot of marketers are going in that direction where it's about automation technology, it's about behavioural targeting, it's about the ability to meet a consumer wherever they are. This whole vernacular of your know, omni-channel um, and touch points wherever the consumer is popping up, um, I am worried that's a trend that certainly played out the last twelve months and continues to play out this year. Um, but if you think about it, it's to me, it's like uh, at a party, it's the guy who asks a girl and every girl at the party to take him out and you know, sleep with me. Will yeah. you sleep with me? Will you sleep with me? Yeah, you know, he gets a slap every time. Um, but he got, might get one in 90 says yes. Well, he might. <laughs> Depends who's at the party. Depends how much alcohol is served. Yeah, but, but invariably I think you'll go home an unhappy man. Um, that sounds like personal, uh, personal experience. <laughs> I didn't say that. Um, but no, when you think about it, it's, it's about relationships. You need to go and if you carry the party analogy on, you know, meet the person, get to know them. So I need to ask a few questions. I need to engage with them, so they need to answer my questions. So I get some information back, and you start to build a rapport, and then eventually, uh, you might ask them out, and you might might like each other. I think marketing you know, needs to take that leaf out of the book to go. It is all about the brand. It's no good just pinging out messages and automating well, I, stuff. I'll, I'll pull you up there because mm -hmm. what I heard you saying is it's all about the relationship, and I think the role of brand in that, to extend your metaphor of the guy yep. at the party is if, you know, a uh, hot young movie star who's a brand and well-known by, by everyone and seen as desirable walks into the room, he doesn't have to ask any women to sleep with him. Mm. They'll be throwing themselves at him. Isn't that the role of brand in this relationship? If you've got a really strong, well-known, popular brand, then the relationship works the other way where you start to drive demand mm. 
yes. or what you're talking about. Yeah. Then you can still build the relationship. Absolutely. I mean, you can't build, what I was going to say, is you can't build a relationship without a brand. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where people go wrong. They go, well, just start a relationship program. Yeah, who are you? Because the question I'd ask is, who the hell are you? Yeah, who are you? And also, big one, you know, I tend to ask a lot of clients, why should I care? Yeah, that's a good one. And the why should I care is, I need to know your brand. I'm working with a a client, or recently, last couple of months, um, and their opening discussion with me was, I want to build a single view of my customer, Mm -hmm. which is build a single view database. I get all these data sources into one database, and then ultimately just automate communication out to that database. Um, and as the, as the conversation went on, I said, yeah, but where is your brand going? Because they're actually operating in a declining market, losing share dramatically in certain segments to competitors that are sexier, they've got a really solid brand story, and they've almost forgotten about their brand story. So I took them right back to what is your brand? What is the brand essence? Why should people care about you? And I've got a few other options. Um, I mean, the other analogy or example is Uber. Yeah. I was listening to the radio this morning, talk back. Uh, talking about the taxi industry and, and Uber. And everyone was complaining from the taxi side, saying, you know, we're, we're paying our fees, we're paying insurance, we're paying for the plate, etc. How unfair is it to have Uber come into the market? Well, hello. Unfortunately, that's the industry we're in. It's dramatically changed. Whether it's legal or illegal, I won't touch that. Um, it's dramatically shaking up the market. But it's disruption. It's disrupted it by technology. Yes. They could do this because the technology allowed them to do it. Correct. And clearly, people want to use it. It's got utility. It's well. It's got a brand first. It's solving mm-hmm. a problem. You yep. know, Uber comes in and says to people, "Are you frustrated about where your taxi is? And can you find your taxi? And yep. do you know who's driving your taxi, etc.?" Um, and solves that problem. So it's a brand positioning that goes, "I will help solve your problem." And consumers go, "Oh, I like that." Um, and suddenly, the technology then has built the um, the way of us communicating wherever we are across mm-hmm. boundaries. So technology just plays the enabler in that sense. And then consumers take control of it and say, we'll break the market. So that that's also an interesting insight from the point of view that, you know, digital technology or technology generally and the data that comes from it. Because I think mm. I read something you wrote recently where you said 90% of the data in the world has been produced in the last two years. I think that was yes. the quote. Right. So, so, but in actual fact... From a marketing point of view, it's not just a marketing issue. It's actually a whole of business issue, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, the scary thing about that stat as well, it's a year old. <laughs> it's an IBM stat that uh, you know, 90% was in the last two years, and that was over a year ago. Um, so it's 95%. It's, it's scary what it is now, but but that equates to, just quick, quickly aside, and I'll come back to your, to your question, that's about 2.8 petabytes of data. Hang now on, I've got I've got no idea what a petabyte is, oh, okay. but to put it in perspective, it's one point eight trillion gigabytes. Right. I still have no idea what a gigabyte really is. So if you think about a gigabyte as a volume like a coffee, yeah. So think about your your regular coffee. That's about a gigabyte. Mm-hmm. So if you had one point eight trillion coffees lined up, that equates to and someone told me this about the scale of the Great Wall of China. Wow. So we have about 2.8 was the number, 2.8 petabytes, let's just say three, about three great walls of China in terms of volume of data. Now that's predicted to be 40 zettabytes, so 40 great walls of China in 2020, which is only, what, three years away, four years away. Amazing. So truckloads of data. So this is why they talk about big data. Yeah, and... 
and this notion was coined by IBM, you know, big data, uh, lots and lots of data. I tend to say big data, big bullshit, <laughs> because there's so much data that people are talking about that no one's really making sense of it. And your question about, yes, it should be whole of business. The challenge in going whole of business is you end up with so many data feeds. Mm. You know, there's data in, in service centers, customer service centers, call centers, mm -hmm. etc. There's data sitting in all their web properties, so whether that's website yep. or social media, blogs, etc. Um, all the analytics programs on top of that. Sales management tools. Lead nurturing, sales management. Um, and then, of course, there are internal business systems. You know, finance systems. Yeah, the finance systems, linking if it's retail to point of sale systems. Yeah. Etc. And obviously through to consumers using apps and, and other technology. So it should be whole of business, but I think that's been the, the difficulty for most uh, traditional companies to say we've built our, our business on traditional systems and legacy systems that were great in the 80s, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and as computers came on in the 80s and 90s, worked for then. Fast forward 20 years, they're all breaking at the seams to handle all this data and massive feeds of consumers wherever they're interacting and as we say they can interact anywhere mm. these days so it's a big challenge for for companies um, but within that there's there's opportunity it's it's stepping back as you say from a whole of business and I think pragmatically looking at the types of data that, that they've got access to um, because most companies I talk to want to look outside their company I say, let's look at data in media and where consumers are touching all sorts of other media. Yeah. And I pull them back and say, let's just look at your data. Don't do a 10-person focus group to find out information or don't look at paying $100,000 for some external panel data. You've got it all in your, in your business somewhere. So if we can prioritise the sources that are in your, your business, whether it's a financial system, a customer service centre system, um, some product purchase history, yeah. etc. If we can find that, and in most companies you can find it pretty quickly, and I'm talking about you know days, it's sitting down with the right people in the right divisions to unearth these sources, it's not hard, and then workshop through and prioritise the sources and say, these 10 are interesting, let's <coughs> just look at those. So it becomes a small data project, not a big data project. Well, look, and there's something that, uh, while you're saying that, that came up for me, and that's one of my bugbears is especially financial services. They spend all, they've got all this information, you know, all the banks have information on their customers, but they spend around 70% of their marketing budget on acquisition mm. and less than 20% on retention. And yet, you know, the best opportunity for them is to actually get their existing customers entangled with more products and getting a greater share of wallet than it is trying to convince someone that has a credit card somewhere else to get another credit card with you. Yes. yes. So this, this whole focus about acquiring other people's customers rather than looking at their existing customers, because the great thing about existing customers is that they've already proven a, a reason for, you know, they're doing business with you. So first of all, you can learn what that is to perhaps look for more people like them if you're into acquisition, yep. but also try and understand them better so that you can broaden their level of engagement with you. Yeah, you're it's spot overlooked on. though. Spot on. It is overlooked and there's lots of thoughts in, in what you're saying there. So first thought with financial institutions, yes, they're built on a very traditional direct marketing model um, and it was very acquisition team, 
and retention team as separate teams. Yeah, but acquisition team was huge. Yeah. Retention team was so small. Because they really care about their customers because the amount of time and effort and money they put into retaining their existing customers is infinitesimally smaller than their acquisition. It is. And then, then you've, got, you've got digital marketers who don't understand some of the work they're doing, which is great work, is actually advocacy. So building panels, advocates, mm. bloggers, all that sort of activity is taking ambassadors or advocates mm. who love a brand, love a product, and get them to talk about it. And you're spot on that, that I talk a lot with clients, build a VIP panel. Yeah. And what that is, that's your best customers. So best in terms of value, so they're obviously financially valuable to your business, they buy lots of your, your product or your service, yep. um, and they're highly engaged in digital channels. So that just means I'm talking to the right people who in different, I guess, channels and areas can talk positively about your brand, whether it's ratings or reviews or VIP panels where they talk about your next products, yep. where they co-create, etc. Um, and that's the power. Uh, so we've gone away, I think, from the old marketing funnel. Uh, lots of people are talking now about the bow tie. I'm sure you've seen the bow yeah, tie, yeah, the bow which tie, is yeah. putting the marketing funnel on its side to the left and then purchase and then advocacy out to the right. Yeah. Um, and you're right. So that, that mentality of taking it all the way through um, is logical, but unfortunately a lot of clients aren't set up that way. So it's about breaking down some silos within businesses, getting the acquisition team to talk to the retention team. Um, another really obvious one is, does that um, retention team talk to the sales force? Yeah. About a dollar for every marketing and sales team that just doesn't talk Unfortunately, that's the biggest problem. You know, the sales guys, whether they're out, and, and females obviously, sorry, whether they're out on the road or whether they're actually just on, on digital media or sitting in a call centre, mm. they're listening and talking with certain keywords to what customers are, are connecting with. So all that information needs to go back to the marketers who are then out creating advocacy and content. and Absolutely. But, but isn't this the challenge of the customer-centric business model? I mean... If I had a dollar for every CEO that has made a proclamation that they're going to be customer-centric, and yet <laughs> their whole organisation is everything but, because yes. almost every organisation starts with, here's what we can do, now let's find the people that are going to buy it from us. Yeah. Whereas um, isn't the way customer-centric philosophy is, here's the customer, what do they want and how can we deliver it to well, them? And how can I make them connect with our brand yeah. world and then make their yeah. brand, our brand world relevant to them? Yeah, you're right. Um, I think uh, customer centricity is a bit like CRM and then social media. It's a buzzword. Mm. So everyone wants it. Uh, you know, it used to be but CRM. no one wants to make the change. No, no, no. Required no. To do it. Well, CRM, well, I want one in black. Uh, what's CRM? Well, that was a total re-engineering of your business philosophy. Um, social media now has gone away from just a Facebook page or, or tweeting to handling whole of business through social channels, you know, mm. customer service and, and content. Um, customer centricity is no different. You need to work out what level of customer centricity your business can achieve. So again, this, this client I'm working with at the moment is a global brand. Um, they threw customer centricity into the, the conversation right at the start and I had to question them and say, how customer-centric can you get? Because there's a scale from naught to 100. Mm. If 100 is totally customer-centric, like you were saying a minute ago, Darren, um, that's totally focused around a customer and built around a customer, co-created with customers, etc., that's one angle. That's yeah. completely customer-centric. And that's 100. Yeah. That's 100. Most companies that are, that are traditional bricks and mortar are down in the 10 or 20. 
Or zero. <laughs> Potentially a minus. <laughs> um, I won't be too harsh. But no, they, they, they stumble and challenge because they still manufacture and bring to market. Mm. And again, I want to be careful on this because I still firmly believe, even up at 100, you still manufacture and bring to market product. It's just the philosophy of how, how you go about Do it. it. Yeah. I mean, Apple, everyone would say Apple is totally customer-centric. No, not at all. I agree with you. They're actually not customer-centric. And certainly when Steve Jobs was there, he was very good at you know, finding things that people wanted, but he pretty much pilfered technologies, wrapped it up beautifully and marketed the hell out of it. The, the difference is, and, and I, you know, Henry Ford said this a long time before Steve Jobs. He said, if I asked the customer what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, but he, he came up with the car. And, and Steve Jobs was the same in that he didn't ask customers what they wanted because he knew they didn't know what they actually wanted. They knew what their problems were yep. and how to articulate those as if you could solve this by doing this. But in actual fact, you know, like uh, the iPod, the music industry, mm. was he basically said, I'm going to put music in the palm, all the music that you ever wanted in the palm of your hand. The phone, he basically yep. said, I'm going to turn the phone into a handheld computer, you know. All he did was come up, look at what people were doing and wanting and look for ways of being, you know, adding utility to it without actually asking them what they wanted for those reasons. Okay, so that's my first point. The second point is that the trouble with a lot of traditional businesses and why they're being disrupted is that they're so locked into the process of delivering whatever it is for the customer, that they don't step away to ask, how can I do this better? Because in all of the major disruptions that have happened in the last few years, you know, the world's largest retailer has no product, mm -hmm. Alibaba, mm -hmm. right? The world's largest accommodation network has no rooms, Airbnb. The largest taxi or, or transport service has no cars, Uber, which you've already mentioned. What are the things about that that have made them able to disrupt is that one, they rely heavily on trust because they have to build trust because they're not actually delivering services, they're facilitating services. And the second is that they've unbundled themselves from the need to have all of this infrastructure to actually deliver that utility to customers. Yeah, and they're, you know, they are companies that have taken advantage of, of this technical technology uh, revolution. Yeah. Um, and and I guess they can be more customer centric. Um, again, though, everything you're saying is it's built on a brand. Mm. So marketing problem, consumer problem. There's the insight. We'll build a brand around it. Yeah. Um, so brand has to be number one. Um, you can still have physical property and physical retail outlets, um, which is not a problem. But you're right. It's thinking through. If I'm going to be customer centric, that's almost the process. Mm. It's not the brand or the business. It's a process of thinking that makes companies more customer-centric. And I, I firmly believe that's relatively easy in your mind to change. But like you're saying, in reality, it's very hard for companies to get their head around. I've been built in divisions you know, in silos, my product, my sales team, marketing team, finance department, etc. It's a challenge. It's, it's a challenge to, to break that down. Um, so I actually think the real stumbling block here is, is people and, and our headspace in business. That the people that are doing really well to get their head around it. And if I think of another company throwing the mix, Zappos, you know what Zappos mm -hmm. has done? Uh, online shoes, 
not a sexy area, selling shoes online. I'm sure when they thought of the business model, oh, well, just think of selling it online, but people have to fit their shoe on, so how on earth is that going to work? Um, but they actually built their whole positioning on wow customer service. Mm. A bit like Walmart. Yeah. So they said, we're gonna deliver such amazing customer service, we won't actually talk about the shoes, we'll talk about customers' experiences interacting with our company or their challenges in their life. Yeah. And then shoes play a part of it. And they're the, you know, the most prolific user of video content. They've created over 40,000 videos just on people using shoes. So this is the, uh, the reason for bringing this up and, and having this conversation is that, to me, this is the biggest opportunity that comes out of data, okay? Because having a science background, the scientific method is observe and make a hypothesis, is mm -hmm. the first two steps, observe and make a hypothesis. There is so much data about customer behaviour. In fact, the one thing we do get a lot of data is, is about people's behaviour because we can track it now mm -hmm. on what they're doing anywhere online. It doesn't give you the insight as to why they're doing it, but that's where the hypothesis comes in. You know, you, you pick Zappos. Zappos is interesting because shoes for women especially are typically such a high engagement area. Right? They're discretionary, but they're high engagement. Yes. And so it was a prime area to be able to transfer into, yes, we're going to go online, but it's not about the shoes, because we know they love shoes, but we're going to make the customer service unbelievable, because part of the experience is the customer service, well, a lot of the experience is the customer service. Right? Yeah. So, you know, you talked before about using data in the company. Why don't you, because th I find a lot of marketers use data to track performance rather than develop insights. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that is? I think because, well, just a quick caveat on that. The, when you think about data, it's all after an event. Mm. So the digital footprint or my footprint of tracking something and leaves a data mark or digital mark footprint, um, I have to have done something. So when you think about it, it's all post activity so all data analysis is retrospective yeah so if we just start with that and say okay we're doing retrospective analysis out of any information we have or any data that we have to look back on what behavior people have have exhibited um, that's a relatively easy thing to do in a sense I can get someone to analyze some data and work out what's happened and then say okay not everyone hit that page but they did hit that page so therefore I'm going to change this page on the website to be more more important um, the challenge, though, is we just have too many data sources. So to right. get a holistic view of consumers, um, I can't go down to that one-to-one -one level and say, Darren has looked at this and this and this and this, and therefore I'm going to look at all the Darrens of the world and see what they've done. That suddenly gets into all this massive data. Mm. And I think that's where people are getting lost. They're suddenly going, we thought we could go one-to-one. -one. And in fact, we can go one-to-one -one with technology because I can send messages to Darren mm. based on his cookie on his computer and he's logged into a certain part and I can send him a message. But I have no idea really about Darren's profile anymore. And right. I've lost the, the art of segmentation because in the old days, if I go, you know, how we started this conversation, direct mail, we had very clear segments. Might have been 10, might have been 8, might have been 5, whatever they were. Um, they were groups of people, maybe mm. 10,000 people. A bit like herds, mm -hmm. and we mailed out to that herd, sort of expecting them to all operate the same. And as you know, in your postcode, if you look at your neighbour, we're all different. Mm -hmm. 
So it's fundamentally flawed, but it's it's a way of it was a way of handling large groups into smaller manageable groups, yeah. but still scalable enough that it, it was worthwhile economically. And it worked. You could prove that certain areas worked better than than yeah. others, and certainly compared to some mass media, uh, to convert people, it worked better. Um, the challenge now, and, and your question, why aren't they doing it? Uh, it's simply too much data. So we've lost the art of which segments we're talking to. We're trying to be one-to-one, but we're sort of being one-to-nothing. Mm-hmm. So we're losing the the real reason why I'm tracking Darren. So the relationship is gone and the reason for the relationship. I think the context of the relationship is gone. Context. So, so there's not a context now of Darren has hit a certain page. I'd like to send him a, a communication of some sort. Why am I sending that to Darren? Where is he in his life cycle with our brand and the product or the product he's using? We've lost that context. Mm. So I think with context gone, we therefore don't know what he's using. We well, you know, sorry, we know what he's using. But we don't know why he's using it. Yeah. To what you were saying earlier, so I don't know why Darren was searching through key uh, using certain keywords on a website. I could make a hypothesis, um, and that's where it gets back <laughs> and to your point. And then you can point. test it, yeah. And you can test it, which is really direct marketing one hundred and one. Exactly, which and gets us back to <laughs> the which is, why, which is why I wanted to start with direct marketing because yeah. to me. Yeah, it's amazing to the. I think back, you know, God, twenty years, and direct marketing was undervalued, mm-hmm. and today it is so relevant and so important, and yet it still seems to be getting overshadowed by the technology of what we can do, yeah. rather than direct marketing gives a frame to what should we do with the technology that we do have. Yeah, you're right, and and that's spot on. And again, I don't think don't see direct marketing or you know data driven marketing, whatever you want to call it. No. Um, that again should come first. It should be your business, your brand, your brand world, um, and then direct or data driven marketing can get to certain types of customers at points in time they want, at points in time you want, or through different channels that can get out there. I mean, a really simple example: a client I worked with. Um, where they're in the health and beauty sector. And we talked long and hard about customer segments and technology, and we wanted to do lots of video content, and they wanted to have lots of social advocacy happening. And, and I had to bring the conversation back after a significant workshop to what are we actually trying to do? What products are we trying to sell? And how will they connect with different types of audiences? And it really got, got back to basics in saying there's inexperienced people who are just coming into this category and just starting to use these products, who have no idea. So we could be the helping hand. There's intermediate people who have a certain level of knowledge, but they're ready for the upsell, the cross-sell, and the next products. And there's people who are advanced in health and beauty who just want deep knowledge and specialist knowledge because they're experts. There's your three segments. So there's suddenly three segments, and it gets back to being consumer-centric because we go, it's actually based on a level of experience. But then you can use data and behaviour to quickly work out which segment they fit into, Correct. make a hypothesis, and then test it. And then, then my first question when people sign up to my club should find out that answer. Mm. Whereas you look at a lot of sign-ups and digital technology people would say, let's just ask the name, the gender, the location, yeah, the address, and yeah. their preference for channel. Well, I have no idea what level of experience you are. Yeah. So you're right. I think a lot of, um, a lot of logic has been lost in just going technology. Um, And by logic, I mean just getting back to some simplistic views of the business, the consumer, and how you're solving their problems. Um, So it's getting back to basics. And 
the risk in being technology driven is you end up trying to be all things to all people and buying shiny toys and investing in lots of shiny toys um, as a marketing team or, or a technology team, um, but losing that art of what's actually going to drive our business. And if we did three things well, let's just do those three things and then use technology to enable a better communication program. Because mm. that's where I believe the, the technology should be placed. It's how do we deliver a better communications program and make that more effective. It's built on a brand foundation. Yeah. Well, Anton, thanks very much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Dan. Good to talk. And um, obviously that uh, strategy of asking lots of women to sleep with you works. Mm-hmm.